sih. Today's Bible reading is from the book of Daniel. Um, it's a split reading. Um, it's Daniel 10 verses 1 to 8 and then Daniel 12 verses 5 to 13 and I'm reading from the NIV. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left, my face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. And then to chapter 12 from verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will be the outcome of all this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is, blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. I feel like I need to say something like, fasten your seatbelt, Put your trade tables away we've got turbulence ahead as we come into this passage and i'm also thinking if you're visiting this morning um, what we like to do here at Kemal presbyterian church is pick the hardest parts of the bible and 
preach on them every week. That's not true at all. What we've been doing is, as you've heard, we're working our way through Daniel and this is where we're up to. Um, and it is a little bit tricky. So let's pray that we would be able to understand what we're looking at and make good sense of it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this part, which can be confusing and unsettling, Lord, we pray that it wouldn't be. We pray that you would give us confidence in Jesus as we read this. And we pray in his name. Amen. Last year, we had our bathroom renovated. And it's a pretty big deal. So, you know, you get a few quotes, get a few tilers to tell you what they can do. And what I've discovered is what you probably already know. What these tilers do is they show you photos of their past work to give you confidence that you can trust them. They show you, you know, the details. They show you what they've done in the past so that you'll trust them to come in with a jackhammer and shred your bathroom. My point is our trust hinges on the quality of their past work. And there's a sense in which, as we come to this part of Daniel, this vision acts in that kind of way. As we look at this vision, it grows our confidence in God and our trust in God. When you see the detail all the way through it, it gives us reason to trust him. As we look at what he's done in the past, it makes us able to trust what he'll do in the future. I think there's that sort of thing happening as we look at this part of the Bible. Um, the reading this morning was just the top and the tail, the start and the finish of chapters 10 to 12. But the chapters, they do fit together. It's one long, detailed vision that you're looking at. Um, we read it in growth group the other uh, Wednesday night. And yeah, it's long. It's got lots of details. It raises loads and loads and loads of questions. It's hard to make sense of. There's odd characters. It talks about stuff that we're just not familiar with. So let's just face it, it's a strange part of the Bible. And it can be unsettling as you look at it. So before we go further, I just want to say don't be put off by this strange part of the Bible. Remember that the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, and I'll read it for you, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That applies for this as well. So relax. It's here to help. It's here to equip us to live for God. It's not here to trap you. It's not here to undermine your confidence in Jesus. We know also from our time in Luke's gospel earlier this year, particularly from Luke chapter 24, we know that Jesus says everything in the Old Testament um, finds its fulfillment in him. He completes it. He fulfills it. So even this part of the Old Testament is somehow connected to the coming of Jesus. What I'm saying is it's okay. You're not going to find a showstopper in here. You're not going to find something which will mean that you can walk away from trusting in Jesus. Your, your assurance of salvation that you enjoy when you put your trust in Jesus should be built up and, con and confirmed as we look at this. It should give us more reason to trust as we look at God's past work. Um, what you won't find is this in the Bible is this next idea. This is my personal opinion. You won't find it expressed in these words anyway. I think, from my experience, that you don't have to have all your questions answered. You can have stuff in the Bible that you haven't decided on yet. Um, I have a collection of things that I leave, leave on this kind of virtual shelf, these unresolved questions. I move the, the books and the questions around a bit from week to week. But I figure if we trust God, who is in control, then we don't have to have everything sorted. We don't have to understand everything. And among Christians, we can be free to disagree over things that are not central to the gospel of Jesus. And so Daniel chapters 10 to 12 have a place on my virtual shelf of things that move around. 
What I want to do in the next few minutes is, first of all, consider these chapters from Daniel's perspective, if we can. And that'll be where most of the, the hard work gets done. That'll take the longest. Secondly, I want us to kind of throw in a bit of a historical perspective, and that'll be very light on. And the third thing is probably the most important, and that is to try and help us think about this from a Christian's perspective, from a New Testament angle. And we'll kind of do that along the way and try to pull together at the end. So start with thinking about this part of the Bible from the point of view of Daniel, who first saw this vision. And as you do that, you kind of got to put yourself in the frame of mind. You've got to think about everything we've read so far in Daniel. Daniel chapters 1 to 6 cover kind of the highlights, these key events across the time of the Babylonian exile. The people of Israel in exile in Babylon, chapters 1 to 6 record key events. And then chapters 7 to 12 record visions that Daniel saw over that same period of time. The opening of chapter 1, kind of, it sets everything up with us having this expectation that what we're going to go on to read will be talking about kings and their gods and underlining the fact that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is completely in control over everything. And there's kind of this refrain or this chorus that kind of repeats, not always in exactly the same words, but we even sang it this morning. It comes through in Daniel around and around. It goes something like this, God sets up kings or God sets up kingdoms. God deposes them again. But God is building an eternal kingdom under the king that he is choosing. And that idea keeps echoing like a chorus through Daniel. So from Daniel's perspective, it may feel like God's people are finished. A long way from home, in every way you can think of, defeated and forgotten, cut off from God and his temple in Jerusalem, nothing much left of their nation. It may feel like they're finished, but in fact, God's far from finished with his people. He is still working to a plan. And Daniel and his friends, what they've got to do is hang on and keep trusting and obeying. Um, they need to keep standing for the true God in the context of a hostile world. And what you see in the first six chapters is examples of them doing that. And the obvious ones that jump out are in chapter 3 and in chapter 6, the furnace and, and the lion's den. But then there's also the littler things, choosing not to, to eat the, the king's food and so on. Then when you come to chapters 7, 8 and 9, these visions... We saw in chapter 7, um, there was this vision of these beastly rulers, four of them coming out of the sea. And in the middle, you have the Ancient of Days, God, judging, ruling over these beastly rulers. And then in contrast to the beast comes one like a son of man, and he will be ruling forever. It's another expression of the chorus, isn't it, through Daniel? Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall at the hand of God, and God's establishing a kingdom that will last forever. In chapter 7, you meet that king who will rule. He's like a man. Um, Daniel, from Daniel's perspective, the vision would give hope. Yeah, sure. Things feel like they're a mess now, but God's working to a bigger plan. They're living under a beastly ruler, and more beastly rulers will come, but it will finish. God will establish his kingdom his rule. And the one that he puts over everything will be a human, ruling in the image of God, like things were meant to be in the Garden of Eden, just like the world began before sin entered. So Daniel and his friends, yes, they'll keep, they keep needing to endure, waiting for God to fulfill this plan to deal with sin. Last week, when we looked at chapter 9, it too contains a short vision, a really short one at the end of a very long prayer. So last week we saw Daniel's been reading through the prophet Jeremiah, um, considering the writings of Moses. He realises that 
This time in exile, it'll last for 70 years. It will, it will finish, it will come to an end. And so from Daniel's perspective, he now understands fully that this time of exile is God punishing their sin for not listening to God and not obeying God. And so he confesses for himself and for his people. He prays his prayer. I imagine he would have prayed at looking towards Jerusalem, longing to get back there and see the place restored and the temple put back together, sacrifices and offering being brought back to God, praying this prayer. And then the answer to his prayer comes almost instantaneously. And it's the summary of the answer is, yeah, that will happen. The restoration of Israel will happen. You will, your people will return. But God's actually working to a bigger restoration plan. Lift your eyes, lift your focus. He's working to a plan that will see the sin that underlies this exile dealt with, fixed, finally and completely. But there's a bit of a bumpy ride along the way. The exile was 70 years. The return and restoration of Jerusalem, yeah, it's imminent. But this bigger restoration, it will take 70 sevens. And then we come to the vision in today's passage. And I think what it's doing is looking ahead, looking ahead toward the bigger restoration. And as it looks ahead, it gives you all these details along the way, the details of the bumpy ride. Um, so when you come and look at today's passage, when you look at chapter 10, verse 1, the narrator reminds us that this is one big long book, um, causing us to think back over everything we've seen so far like we've just done because at the beginning of chapter 10 in verse 1 he mentions it's the first year of king cyrus who you saw back in chapter 1 so there's a kind of a, a link here this is the end of this book the narrator reminds us again of how we started by telling us um, daniel's babylonian name belteshazzar why bring that up well it kind of reminds you of where we started he was taken away from home given a foreign name what the first couple of verses do is makes you call to mind everything you've read so far in Daniel, and then you keep moving in to the chapter. Um, Timing-wise, it's likely that the first um, returnees from exile have already made their way back to Jerusalem, started rebuilding, but here's Daniel still in, in, in Babylon, and perhaps that's why he prays so earnestly um, in the, in, uh, from verse 2 onwards. And then in verse 4, Daniel says he was with some others on the banks of the Tigris River, and in 10 verse 5, he saw... He looked up and he saw, well, he saw a man. Um, his humanness gets underlined again and again. So, for example, in 10 verse 16, he looks like a man. In 10 verse 18, looked like a man. Right ahead in 12 verse 6, he's a man clothed in linen. Same in 12 verse 7. I think when we see what Daniel is describing, I think we're meant to call to mind chapter 7. He's... The one, like a son of man, from chapter 7. A man in God's image. Um, it also sounds a lot like when we looked at Revelation, feels like forever ago, but it was only last year. Revelation opens with this one walking through the lampstands. John gets kind of a look at Jesus walking among the lampstands. It's that kind of picture you've got here. From Daniel's perspective, all those years before Christ... Well, he doesn't see Jesus. He sees a man from his perspective, a powerful, godlike man. The description of him, it kind of you know, has echoes of how the Ancient of Days is described, and it's his voice that's the big thing. This man, he causes other people to run away in verses 7 to 9 without even seeing him. They, they, they run away in terror. And this man's so powerful and so amazing that Daniel's caused to fall flat on his face, and this man doesn't object to that. It's kind of fitting that Daniel would react like that. Um, in 10 verse 12, Daniel's told not to be afraid. 
His prayers have been heard. This vision, it's the response to his prayers, it seems. Uh, but there's been a little bit of a delay in this man getting through because of the prince of Persia, of the Persian Empire in verse 13. And now you start to think, wow, this is really getting strange. You look down in verse 20. Greece also has a representative priest, uh, prince. rather. Down in verse 13, you see Michael is the chief prince. And you look towards the end of the chapter around verse 21, it seems he is the prince of Israel. We read this and we think, what is going on? I think it's safe to assume that what God is doing here is giving Daniel a look behind the scenes. This is apocalyptic. It's pulling back the curtains, letting Daniel see what goes on in a realm that we never normally get to look at. It's always happening, but it's, we don't see it. There's stuff going on behind the scenes. It's like Daniel gets this little look at what's going on behind there. Um, is it a literal description of what happens in this spiritual realm? Is it a literal description? Can you read this as you know, exactly what's happening? Well, I'm not sure. I think it's highly possible that God is what the theologians say is lisping. You know when you talk to little kids and you, you dumb down your talking to them so they can understand you? You talk in a way that you think they will understand. It could be that God is lisping to us or to Daniel at this point, giving him a way to understand what is behind the scenes. Um, as Christians, we believe in the virgin birth. We believe in a bodily resurrection. We believe in a creator God. So it's not a big deal for us to think this could be literal. Angels, princes and so on. That's fine. But there's only a few places in the Bible where you get this look behind the curtain and you don't get a whole lot of detail to go, to go on in terms of understanding this spiritual dimension. Um, there's connections like the fact that um, in the previous chapter, in chapter 9, Gabriel comes with a message for Daniel. Gabriel returns in the New Testament and comes to Elizabeth and to Mary. There's connections like that where you think, all oh, right, so maybe these are you know, literal description of exact things that are happening. But then there's tricks like here in chapter 10, Daniel sees who I presume is Jesus, but he sees him looking like a man. Jesus isn't a man at this point. He hasn't come in human form yet. So is this literal or is it, well, it's a vision, isn't it? And so you kind of got to you know, leave a few things unanswered here. Don't lock everything in. Um, if it were important for us to know everything about the spiritual realm, then God would give us all the details we need and all the instructions that we need in the rest of the Bible. But from Daniel's perspective, this is a reminder that there's more going on than what you see day to day. This is looking behind the scenes. Um, from our Christian perspective, uh, thinking about this part of the Bible, it's a worthwhile lesson to learn as well, isn't it? I mean, we get on with our day-to-day -day life. We think very rationally about everything. But keep in mind, there's stuff happening that we don't know, and we don't see. Um, knowing that there is a spiritual battle going on means that we want to arm ourselves for the fight. And so you read passages like Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armour of God. The way you do that is you strap God's word around your waist, sorry, the truth around your waist, you have the sword of the spirit, you're praying on all occasions, you have the shield of faith. That's your armour for this battle that you can't see. Do we need to get our head around every single detail of what happens behind the scenes? Well, I don't think so. Think about it this way. I drove around Sydney streets for many years safely, 
obeyed the traffic lights, turned where I was supposed to. Well, I even did some things I shouldn't have, but mum and dad are watching YouTube, so I'll tell Night Church, but not you. But I, the thing is, I drove around Sydney streets safely, obeying the, the traffic lights. It wasn't until I was at work that we did this tour of the traffic control centre in the CBD. Went into this room, which I'm sure I've told you about before, with computer screens everywhere. And from that kind of hub, they control all the traffic lights. There's an emergency, they can turn lights on. And that visit to the control room changed the way I think about traffic lights, even to today. But do I need to understand about that control room to be safe on the road? Absolutely not. And I think it's a bit like that here. There's this stuff that you don't need to know to live a perfectly godly Christian life so you can relax. What we do get to understand as you look at bits like this in Daniel, yeah, it informs and shapes everything we think. But not knowing, not understanding is not going to undermine your faith in Jesus. Um, if you think this look behind the scenes, if you, if you think about this look behind the scenes, a bit like that traffic control room visit. I'd actually go further and say, take great care interacting with people who claim to understand everything or who fixate on passages like this and build great theories about what happens behind the scenes. What I'm saying is, firstly, take care in reading this literally. This is a vision in an apocalyptic genre, describing things that we don't normally get to see, speaking down in a way that may involve some symbolism as well. And secondly, allow bits you don't understand just to remain open, open questions for you. Um, don't lock everything in. You can live a, a Christ-honouring life without being able to exegete Daniel 10 to 12. Trust me, I've done it for years. Um, the key behind the scene tour, though, the key to this tour that Daniel gets, it's there in verse, 15, verse 14 of chapter 10. What Daniel is being shown is a vision of what will happen to his people, Israel. So 10 verse 14, now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. And then it starts getting pretty heavy. So down, if you jump into 11 verse 2, it begins to outline a detailed sequence of events. And I'll run you through some of it. I've got to read it because it's so detailed. Um, more kings are going to arise in Persia. And then Persia is going to take on Greece. A mighty king will come who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. But after he rises, his kingdom will be broken up. And it'll happen kind of suddenly, it feels like. There'll be four parts to this kingdom then. Um, his kingdom will go to his descendants. The, the ruler in the, in the north will become strong. The ruler in the south will become strong. There'll be all this interaction that happens. And it feels like, as you read through, Israel's stuck in the middle of this conflict between north and south. Um, we're only up to verse 6 so far. Um, the details roll on describing this, this conflict between north and south. In 11 verse 14, it seems like Daniel's people become embroiled in this this conflict between north and south. The king of the north will invade the south and by verse 16 he'll establish himself in a beautiful land. I think as, you, as Daniel's seeing this from his perspective, I think that's the land of Canaan. I think that's the Israelite territory that they now possess or did possess. Um, the vision gets more focused from verse 20 and along comes this contemptible person um, he'll come to power through intrigue, as you gloss through these verses. He'll act deceitfully. He'll stir up strength against the south and wage war against the south. 
And perhaps the references in verse 28 to the covenant is a way of saying he'll have it in for Israel and all that they represent. And then in 11 verse 31, this one will desecrate the temple fortress. He'll abolish daily sacrifices. He'll set up an abomination that causes desolation. It's an idea that you hear echoed through other parts of the Bible, that bit. From 11 verse 36, this king will exalt himself above every god and say unheard of things against the god of gods. And so the details roll on and on. It is very detailed. It looks a bit like by the end of chapter 11 that the king of the south, that this um, this, uh, ugly character has pitched himself in tents between the seas and the beautiful mountain, which I take to be Jerusalem. But look at what it says. It's almost ironic. In verse 45, how it ends. He will come to his end and no one will help him. Can you hear an echo of the chorus of Daniel there? God sets up kings. God brings them down. And so what you're expecting is the next bit. God's setting up a king who will, live, who will rule forever. That's what the good reader of Daniel would be expecting. And I think you start to get that by the time you come to chapter 12. So if you look in chapter 12, um, I think it's verse 1, 12 verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the end, until the time of the end. Somewhere along the line, this vision of future events kind of did a time warp to the end of time, didn't it? And you read commentaries and they all argue over when that point happens. And then as you keep reading, it feels like you're back into this time frame again. It does this sort of switch around. Um, 12 verses 1 to 4 sounds like Judgment Day when Jesus will return. This kind of blurry time warp jump thing and back again is what you see in other apocalyptic literature in the Bible too. You see it in Revelation. You even see it on Jesus' lips when, for example, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus, he's just leaving the, the temple with his disciples and they say, look at these amazing stones building this temple. It's incredible because by then the temple's being rebuilt for the third or fourth time or whatever. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left on the other. And then he starts talking in a way that sounds a lot like this part of Daniel. Starts, you think he's talking about future events, but then he does this jump to the end of time and then it's the style it's the apocalyptic style um, back in Daniel chapter 12 verse 6 Daniel sees two others and one of these other people asks the son of man how long and when's this going to happen and he gets the same kind of answer that Jesus gave the disciples so if you look at 12 verse 7 the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left towards heaven and I heard him swear by him who lives forever saying it will be for a time times and half a time when the power of the holy people has been finally broken all these things will be completed i heard but i did not understand so i asked my lord what will be the outcome of of this be and he replied go your way daniel because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end and by verse 11 we're back to the abomination that causes desolation that you saw back in chapter 11 it's going from the near future to the 
end of time and back again. From Daniel's perspective, I think what Daniel's being told by the end of this is to hang on, to keep persevering. So in verse 13, as for you, you go your way till the end. You will rest and then, all, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. There's a kind of reassurance there. Daniel, you just have to hang on. You're safe. Thinking about this from Daniel's point of view, he's been given this look behind the scenes, this very detailed vision of the spiritual reality that you don't get to normally see. And along here, he sees there's a rough ride between now and the time when God deals with sin. And what Daniel has to do is patiently endure and press on. From Daniel's perspective, he should trust and obey, keep serving God, keep standing out as someone who lives for God. Um, we've done most of the work in trying to unravel this passage, I think. But let, let's just kind of play around a little bit with a brief look to the historical perspective on this. So as historians look back on this part of Daniel and read it, it's amazing what they see. And this is the point where, really, read a commentary, honestly, because all I'll do is tell you what a commentary says. It's the kind of detail which, well, I'll, I'll run you through some of it, you'll get the feel for it. This is where the average person basically needs to rely on a commentary. The amazing thing is that if you do dig around in the annals of history, what you'll find is that chapter 11 goes a long way in describing events blow by blow that lead into the time just before Jesus arrives. The alignment is so close, the details are so noticeable, that it's led people to question whether this part of Daniel was written after the fact. Like, it's not prophetic, not predicting at all. But again, we're Christians who believe in a sovereign God. Why can't God predict that these things are going to happen? Let me give you a bit of a taste for the way these things kind of align in the commentary. So the fourth um, Persian king after Cyrus was Xerxes, who's known to have had huge wealth through taxation and so on, and then blew it all fighting Greece. A mighty king comes whose kingdom will be fragmented, in verses 3 to 4, lines up very well with Alexander the Great. And then Alexander the Great's kingdom gets divided into four. Ptolemy I becomes ruler over Egypt in the south. Seleucus I controls Syria in the north. And this power struggle between the north and south is on. Um, there's an attempted alliance uh, between the grandson of Seleucus I and Bernice, the daughter of Ptolemy II, and it fails. And on it goes, these remarkable alignments with historical events. And the details increase from verse 20 and appear to describe Antiochus or um, Antiochus Epiphany, who gives himself that title, this, this name that kind of says, I'm God, worship me. Um, he attacked Jerusalem around 170 BC, put an end to sacrifices for a time. You can, I'll call that the end of the history lesson. Read the commentaries for yourself. It is amazing how these chapters seem to describe historical events. The point is, this vision in Daniel has a remarkable alignment with history until a point where the vision then switches and jumps ahead, like we've already noticed with an end-of-time focus. And so the historical perspective on Daniel's vision it would be no use to Daniel, would it? Think about Daniel looking ahead at this. It makes no sense to him. It's only for us looking back. And I wonder if for us, as we look back, I wonder if it's a bit like 
flicking through the Tyler's photos of his past work and realising, yeah, I can trust this guy. Maybe that's the way we should allow the historical perspective to inform and shape us as Christians. Based on God's actions in the past and based on his demonstration, this demonstration of God's sovereign planning, we've got more reason to trust God, that he is in control and we can trust him with what's yet to happen too. So we've thought about Daniel from Daniel's, uh, these chapters from Daniel's perspective. We've kind of noted the historic along the way. I've tried to throw in how we might view these chapters as Christians. And that's the most important thing for us, isn't it? To think about the Christian perspective on this part of the Bible. I've been trying to show you along the way that we can read this part of the Bible as scripture that informs and shapes our trust in Jesus. We don't need to be afraid of it. Um, we can read this part of the Bible as being fulfilled and completed in the work of Jesus. And so as we read with the benefit of hindsight, yeah, this vision should again show us that God is sovereign, that he is in control and that he's working to a plan. It's a plan that climaxes in Jesus and it's a plan that's complete when Jesus returns. And we, like Daniel, we have to patiently endure and keep trusting our creator God. We've got a whole lot in common with Daniel. We, we live to serve the same God. We, like Daniel, look back on history and the things God has done and that builds our trust in God. We see the way that God saved his people out of Egypt, the way he brought his people out of Canaan, uh, to, into Canaan. Um, God's portfolio of past work shows us that we can trust God, just like it did for Daniel. And like Daniel, we have more and more in common with him as Christians. We live in a world where, on the whole, people are hostile towards God and the idea of God and Jesus. We're called on to live as aliens and strangers. But our circumstances are different to Daniel's too because we look back and we can see the climax of God's plan. God sending his son, our saviour and our king, Jesus dying our death. We now understand how God deals with sin, the problem that underlies the exile. We have this clearer understanding of God's plans and God's purposes. And so um, chapter 10 to 12 of Daniel just gives us more reason to trust in our great God and keep living for him. Um, I'm going to pray. I'm thinking at night church we might have some time for questions because it is one of those passages. But I hope there's enough for you to keep thinking about these things and maybe dig around for yourself some more. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word in the pages of the Bible and thank you that we can read in our, own, in our own language and understand. Lord, we pray that you would be building our confidence in you. We pray that our understanding of this tricky part of Daniel might grow our trust that you are in control and that you're working to a plan to see everything put under Jesus. Father, we pray for each one of us. Please help us to continue to live for Jesus, trusting and obeying him, even when it makes us a little odd compared to those around us in this world. Uh, we pray for us as a church too. We pray that we'd be hanging on to your promises in your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.